So let me introduce the panel and the topic. Annabel Crabb, you would know from her book, which has turned out to be one of the great bestsellers of, uh, of this couple of, last couple of months, called The Wife Drought. Um, she's also known, of course, for, for Kitchen Cabinet on, uh, on the ABC, for coming on my radio program and... <laughs> <laughs> Not allowing me to get a word in edgeways, which is a blessed relief to all the listeners. Uh, Graham Russell has been working in this field for a long time. He's been one of the great pioneers of research into men, women and how households work. He's author of many books, uh, including First Time Father, and has been an associate professor at Macquarie University. And visiting us from overseas is Bridget Schulte, whose book Overwhelmed, Work, Love and Play When No One Has the Time is one of those wonderful books which combines a lot of hard crunching of data with some tragic stories from her own life <laughs> with her husband, Tom, who, having read the book, I want to advise to sue. <laughs> but maybe we can start with that, because I, I think I speak for um, a lot of people um, about their relationships in that you start out fine, actually, and you're sharing things and you think we've entered together into this fe feminist nirvana, and then you have a child. Exactly. Bridget. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, my husband and I, we started off with that, that very idea that we would be, I mean, I was this militant feminist. I was going to have this equal partner, and I didn't get married till I was 30 because I wanted to make sure that that happened. You know, and then, woo, once that, once our, once our son came home, it was like, I don't know, I, like creeping tendrils of like traditionalism and uh, you know, like the, these kind of old movies started playing in my head. And all of a sudden I thought, you know, I have to be the one to take the kids to the doctor. I have to go to the dentist. I, you know, I'm, to be a good mother, I'm the one that should stay home if it's a snow day or if their kids are sick. There was like this, this weird guilt that, you know, I think particularly because I was a working mother and I felt really guilty going back to work. And again, in the, in the United States, we don't have any paid parental leave. So most people go back to work right away. You're lucky if you get three months. Um, you know, I did take some, some, a longer period of time, most of it unpaid, um, but I still felt very guilty. And, and, and so I think that some of that guilt fueled what really became, I didn't realize this until working on this book, but the, the term is maternal gatekeeping. I didn't realize that in my guilt and my feeling like I had to do everything, I kept Tom at arm's length. So if he didn't know where the dentist was and he didn't know where the doctor was and I was really angry with him for that, I never gave him an opportunity to find out. And I think that's, um, that was one of the most revelatory things to me. When I started working on this book, I thought it would really be only about women. And I very quickly discovered you cannot write about time and relationships and feeling overwhelmed and how to get out of it without writing about both men and women. And I will say, you know, hopefully Tom won't sue. Um, you know, we've really, we finally started doing the work after 20 some years of marriage that we probably should have done all along. You know, when we would try to talk about things, it would always be me accusing and he, he feeling defensive. And it took us a long time to, to we'd go on long walks and hmm. try to talk about things in a very neutral way. How did we get here and how do we get how do we get beyond And I want to talk to you a bit later maybe about that process of actually achieving change. Um, you've got to tell people about that photograph he sends you from Afghanistan. <laughs> Well, I think one, to me, that really symbolized where our life had gone. I used to say that Tom has the career and I try not to get fired because I was sort of doing everything and he would go off to work in the morning. And so, um, and I was always feeling, I kind of had this low level resentment all the time, you know, because to just try to get un uninterrupted time at work was really almost impossible. 
uh, you know, the kids would call, somebody would be sick, or, you know, the doctor's office would call, and I was kind of handling all of that. And then there was a time, my husband covers the military for National Public Radio, and uh, for a period for, he's actually going to go back to Afghanistan in the fall, he would go twice a year for four to six weeks at a time to Iraq or Afghanistan. And at one point, he sent me this photo of himself, and he's in a war zone, right? And he's wearing a bulletproof vest, and he hasn't shaved. He probably hasn't showered in days. And he's, they were living in these container boxes, you know? I mean, I don't even know where they went to the bathroom. And, uh, and he looks like hell, and he's kind of got this coffee cup, and he's just got this beatific smile on his face. And I looked at that picture, and it's not like I was afraid, which I probably should have been. Oh, my God, he's in a war zone. I was jealous. <laughs> and that really shocked me because what I realized was he got to do one thing every day and that was go to work. And I felt like I was doing a million things and doing none of them very well. Yeah. A- Annabelle, part of your book is to say that there's been this enormous change in the way women's lives are structured in the last 50 years. You go back 50 years and women had to give up a public serv- service job when they got married. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's been this massive change in the lives of one gender. There hasn't kind of been an equivalent change in the lives of the other. Yeah, look, I think in the last half century, you know, we've had this incredible transformative force of feminism that has kind of... Um, cracked down a lot of those barriers, some of them legislative (laughs) barriers. You mentioned 50 years ago the Public Service Act required women to quit their jobs when they got married as a matter of um, prescription. Um, But, you know, uh, feminism um, and the cause of the advancement of women has been all about finding the barriers that stop women from getting into the workplace and eliminating them, you know, whether it's um, um, equal pay legislation, which is still a work in progress, or, um, <laughs> or you know, reproductive choice or, um, or outlawing sexual harassment in the workplace and so on. Um, and so it's all been about women changing and women getting to do this stuff that they didn't get to do before and managing all of that. But the flip side of that is that amidst all this sort of furious change among women, um, men haven't really kind of embraced a corresponding flow in the other direction, you know. Um, and I think that we pay a lot of attention to the barriers that face women on the way into the workplace, but we don't really pay all that much attention to the barriers that face men on their way out of it. And um, that, I think, is a real problem because um, uh, I think that there are cultural and, um, uh, and professional barriers that stop men from exercising the same kind of flexibility that women now increasingly expect and um, exercise Mm -hmm. over the course of their lives. Like, it's a totally normal human thing to do to change the way you work depending on what the hell else is going on, right? I mean, women do it all the time and they do it to the point of, you know... um, keeping a thousand balls in the air, I know exactly how you feel with that whole, you know, the, the freedom of the parent who's going to work and is going to work for eight hours or more or whatever and isn't kind of interspersing that work with, oh, Jesus, it's a mufty day and I forgot, or, you know, all of that sort of stuff that exercises this sort of low-level neural pressure on you all the time is, you know, it, it looks like a great place to be. Um, but anyway, so I think that... Um, 
making it easier for men to exercise that choice and flexibility is a really important thing. Because you do talk to a few guys in the book who've had, uh, you know, obviously a lot of women have this problem too, but Mm. the guys have it maybe even more starkly. The bosses really think when they they ask to take time off to be a young dad, the bosses secretly say, well, if you're a man who's doing that, well, you clearly haven't got any ambition. Well, I look at um, the experience of Anna Burke, right? So she's a, um, she's a, a member of parliament. Um, she, rep- she was the speaker of the House of Representatives during a time when it was quite tricky to be the speaker of the House of Representatives. But she was elected to parliament um, in the year 1998. And she got elected kind of by accident. <laughs> she was like, um, oh, God, I was going to have kids and now I've got to be an MP. Anyway... Fine. Went ahead and had a baby anyway, and she became, in the year 2000, only the second woman to give birth to a child while serving as a member of the House of Reps, which is just bonkers, I reckon, because, you know, men have been breeding like rabbits in Parliament for, you know, 100 years and nobody cares, you know, or thinks it's weird. Um, anyway, so she, and she sort of arrived at Parliament House, hey, I've got this tiny baby, I'm waking up with this baby. Nobody knew how to deal with a tiny baby in Parliament House. They're just like, oh, what? And so she was just like, oh, I think they have enough then. tiny babies yeah, there. <laughs> the, the, the baby had a sort of, like, you know, average emotional maturity for the building, but, yeah. Um, so her husband was working as a, um, an ambulance uh, paramedic at the time and he's, they just looked at the situation and went, look, I've got to come with you. Like, you can't just have this baby by yourself in, you know, I'm going to take some parental leave. So he went to his employer and he said, um, how about I have a year's parental leave? And they said, well, no, you can't do that. And he said, well, it's right here in the agreement that it's available. And he, they said, well, only to women, not to you. You're a guy. Um, year 2000, um, and eventually he sort of pushed a bit and got out the dictionary and pointed to the word parental and indicated <laughs> that it could be, you know, either one. And they kind of went, oh, okay. But the main thing was they didn't want to create a precedent, they didn't want to break with tradition, they didn't want to create some mad rush of crazy guys taking leave. And so they're just, you know, no. And then, well, you know, they had to do it, so they did. And it, there is a sort of incremental pushing thing that, you know, that... Mm-hmm men have to go through when they ask for something that men don't ordinarily ask for. And, you know, it can be... It's, it's not like it's illegal for them to ask for the same sort of um, flexible um, uh, allowances that, that women get in the workplace. It's just that no-one expects them to ask, and so they can feel a bit weird about... The response is yeah. different. Graeme, you've done a lot of work, though, with, first, with parents, uh, with, with fathers who have taken parental leave off, who have been the kind of outliers who've broken down the barrier. How, how have they done it and how hard have they found it? Well, let me start out to tell you a story about me, and I'll get to that, because I think that one of the things that we do ignore in this is that uh, there's a lot of diversity amongst men. And having been in this field for 40, well, was Charles, 42 years old, uh, it's about that length of time, there's been an enormous change, but I think the problem that we've got here is frustration. You know, it hasn't changed as quickly, and I accept completely what Annabelle said. But it's interesting because um, as a man, often if you declare that you have an interest in this, say in a corporate area, you kind of looked on a little bit suspiciously as well. But I can't say that I was a man, you know, like who said, I'm, I want to be a feminist and I want to be someone who's actively doing this. I kind of stumbled into it. And the reason why, and the reason why I'm going to tell this story, because I wasn't partnered with a gatekeeper, right? I was partnered <laughs> with somebody who expected that to, to happen. It, it, you know, so in, in the relationship, that's you know, what, what was expected. And so I got involved in fatherhood because of that. 
right? So in terms and of... And because you were around. That's true too. Right. Time is important. Mm-hmm. I listened to that this morning. Time is important. I was mm-hmm. around. That's right. I was around and I was observing. And the thing that struck me as well, because in those days it was a question, can you be competent as a male? Right? Can you be competent as a caregiver? I mean, it's still a question. It's still, well, it is still a question. And one of my first academic papers was, you know, fathers reluctant or incompetent caregivers or something like that, but it had those two dimensions to it. So that there was this question around competence. Now we've gone down a pathway of essentialization of men and saying, well, you know, fathers need to be involved because they're doing something different and they've got that masculine model and all that. We might get to that, we may not. It is true, if you look at the data in the workplace, um, on average about 40% of men say that they would be seen as being less, sorry, 30% of men say that they would be seen as being less committed if they access flexible work or access leave in, in that kind of way. Now, those figures go up if you're a man with children and they go up if you are a middle manager. So in other words, the workplace in terms of negotiating that in most societies, and um, Bridget in in her talk this morning gave the example of Sweden, in Sweden and lots of other Scandinavian countries, there is an expectation that men will take parental leave. Uh, There is an expectation that it won't be that a man comes down and he's bended, please can I take um, parental leave and then uh, you have to figure all that out for yourself. In a lot of those societies, the expected in the workplace adjusts. And it's, you know, something that happens as, as normal. But in a lot of workplaces, now, I could tell you the story you just told there and to, you know, the, the one of Anna Burke, um, I could tell you that story in my own family, my own son trying to negotiate parental leave, you know, a few years ago. The same kind of thing happened. So, you know, it, it's still a, a fairly mm-hmm. tough thing. Now, I don't see the role models in the workplace. I don't see uh, senior men standing up and saying, I want to do this and this is, you know, really important. So. I agree with Annabelle that this is an enormous barrier that we have. Because it's still, uh, uh, I think, Annabelle, in your book, you say the, the, the mirror image of the conventional family where the, the father is the full-time caregiver and the mother is working full-time, that's one in 100 families. Mm-hmm. It's 1%. Yeah, yeah. The house husbands aren't all over the place. So yeah. The, the, the um, TV show is very popular. Um, they've got their own TV show. Yeah, and <laughs> but more interestingly, like a men... Um, uh, the experiences of both those people, and I talked to um, a bunch of um, um, female breadwinner, sole breadwinner mums, and a bunch of um, sole caregiver dads, or primary mm-hmm. caregiver dads. And the funny thing is, like, those families are where you really find, when you talk to them about their experiences, you really understand how deep-seated our subterranean belief is in Australia that the most normal thing is for the dad to be the the, um, breadwinner and for the mum to be the caregiver. Because all of those women that I talked to and the men all had examples where they would be asked things, either at work or, you know, at the school gate or whatever, that their flip side, you know, versions of the other gender were never asked. So women tend to find when they are the um, the principal breadwinner, they'll be asked things at work all the time like, oh, how do you do it? How do you manage it? Or um, aren't you amazing? Or, um, you know, uh, where are the children? Oh, don't you miss them? And, mm-hmm. you know, things that they would never ask a guy who was... Um, the primary breadwinner for his family and the the guys who are the primary caregiver get asked all sorts of stuff like, you know, 
how can you manage this? Like, you know, you're amazing that you can get three children to school. That's incredible. And often it'll be like a, a woman with four kids will be like, you know, can I bring you a casserole or something? Like, I mean, how are you coping? Are you okay? Or what are you doing here? Oh, have you lost your job? Or like, you know, that happens all the time. And, you know, that's how you can tell how strong these expectations are because you watch what happens to people who do the other thing and see how much time they spend answering questions. I talked to this woman called Fiona Sugden who was um, uh, Kevin Rudd's press sec and um, she's an amazing woman. She's um, a young woman. They all had to be young to work for Kevin. Um, <laughs> she had, you know, at age 30, three children under the age of four. She'd, um, she'd actually left um, politics and when Kevin Rudd came back to the prime ministership, he rang her and he said, will you come with me on my campaign? And it's like three months or something like that. And she had these three little kids and she said, yep, I will. And so her husband, you know, was the primary caregiver in that time and she was just, you know, living that crazy campaign lifestyle as lots of dads do with kids. But she practically had to, like hire another press secretary just to answer the questions. Even, like, people were saying, Are you, you've actually lost your mind, you know, like it was quite full-on, you know, concern for her and her children and where were they and were they living in a ditch somewhere and she'd just say they are with their yeah. father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. So the topic is can men change? It's the all about men session in all about women. So uh, an attempt to change, your attempt, to, your and Tom's attempt to change, you've got to help her in and everything. Well, you know, one of the things that, that really struck me, one of the things that Graham just said was talking about time. And I, I think one of the things that helped us change was really learning and being much more aware of what the science is showing, what we're discovering. I assumed, and I think a lot of us do, that there is just something called the maternal instinct, that mothers are just naturally better at this. I certainly assumed that. That's probably why I was gatekeeping. <laughs> And what was fascinating is that that's not true. Mm -hmm. That what it is, is time. That women have always had the time to become confident and competent, to figure out, okay, this, this cry means this, they're fussing, they mean, that means that. But what's fascinating is that we're discovering that men are just as wired biologically for nurture as, as women are. But we didn't know that until very recently because we never looked, because we didn't assume it was true. We didn't know that men had oxytocin because we didn't look. They found it by accident. That's sort of the bonding hormone. They didn't realize that men also produce prolactin, which is the hormone that also produces breast milk. So men change as they become fathers. Their testosterone level drops significantly. Uh, you know, so I think that that was a huge... A Graham huge and I still have plenty. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, again, I think that that's a really important thing. You know, we still don't really talk about that. We don't really know that. And so, uh, you know, the studies, there, there have been studies that what happens is uh, there might be a slight response difference, you know, so the woman feels like she has to respond, so she's there faster, you know, because she's usually there. She gets the maternity leave. Uh, fathers don't get the parental leave, so they have the time to figure it out. And so then after a while, the baby gets used to that one person coming. And this was certainly the case in, in my family. I had the maternity leave. My husband didn't take any time. So he comes home at the end of a day. I'm exhausted. I'm still in my pajamas. I've cut the baby's fingernails, and I feel like I've had a 
busy day, you know? I don't know what I've done. And he comes home, I'm like, I'm exhausted, you take the baby. You know, and the baby starts to fuss, and then the guy doesn't know what to do, and he sort of sits there. And then I get all furious, like, give me that baby back, idiot. <laughs> you don't know what you're doing. You know, and then it just reinforces that. And notion. he's thinking, I wish I was back in Afghanistan. <laughs> Right, but it just reinforces that kind of like that assumption that I just naturally know what to do and sort of he's just like, hey, you got the equipment, I don't know, you, you deal with the baby. You know, and, and, I think, um, and I think that's why it's really important to understand that science at that critical moment. And sometimes what I tell Americans, because men, it's unbelievable at some of the wealthiest multinational corporations, men will maybe, maybe get one day of parental leave, one day. I think that's inhuman, I think it's cruel. There's a, a, a young father at CNN who, is, who actually had to file a complaint, an equal opportunity, uh, uh, equal employment opportunity commission complaint against Time Warner because everybody, mothers got maternity leave, parent, uh, adoptive parents got adoptive parent leaves. The only people that didn't get paid leave were biological fathers. He's like, this is crazy. So he actually filed a complaint. He's written a book that'll be coming out. So there is this beginning kind of movement in the United States um, but it is criminal. And until men get time, one of the things that I'll say to young families, you know, like learn from my mistakes, create your own parental leave. So Saturday morning is dad, solo time. And mom, don't take your phone. He doesn't get to call you like, what do I do? You know, and you go and get time to yourself and really, you know, give the guy time to develop competence and confidence and do it his own way. It's not going to be your way and your way is not necessarily better. It's different and figure out how to share. So that's what Tom and I had to do. We started taking long walks. You know, I did. I brought a reporter's notebook with me. I just interviewed him. You know, why did you never take parental leave? I flippin' hated you for years. <laughs> you know, why do you think that somehow I'm biologically wired to do the dishes? You know, like, and... <laughs> And why do you think doing the dishes means don't do the pots? I don't get that. <laughs> you know? And so we really had to, we, you know, and it's still a work in progress, but we really had to kind of put out on the table, all right, what is the work that needs to get done to make this house run? What do the kids really need? Do they need to run to like all these different activities? Or, you know, are we all just driving ourselves crazy? And then what are the common standards that we can agree to? Because if you heard the last talk, where we always used to get stuck was, oh, your standards are too high. You're just like Marge Simpson. And if the house was burning down, you'd run in and do the dishes, you know? And then I, and I would be like, well, and you're a slob and, you know, you don't do anything. So we had to kind of figure out what were the common standards we could agree to so we could stop arguing about it all the time. Because that just takes so much energy. And it just, you know, makes you, it just takes so much energy to have that sense of resentment and guilt all the time. So I do feel like we've made a lot of progress. Mm. But it's all still short of the Scandinavian countries. Graham, tell us about how they've done that and when, how that social revolution happened and its kind of impact. Well, I think it's a fairly complex thing. I think sometimes we come back and think about it as an individual thing. Men have choice, fathers have choice and so on, and, and therefore why aren't they doing more of that? Then you have the couple relationship that we're talking about here, and that's part of the negotiation of it. Social policy, I think, is a critical thing. I, uh, the other day in a, in a corporate function, made the statement that I didn't, think, I didn't think too many corporations that I work with are really serious about gender equality. 
And for a lot of people, they might say, well, what? hang on a minute, they're really interested in women going to the paid workforce and, and uh, seniority and so on, but they're not really interested in gender equality because they're not looking at the other part of the equation. What is the difference in the Scandinavian countries is that gender equality is an assumption that's built in to policy. And so, therefore, that leads to a whole lot of other things in terms of expectations, goes through the workplace. And I, I have to admit, because I do a lot of work with a colleague who um, works in Sweden, and I know that in the, in the private sector, things haven't changed nearly as much as in the, in the public sector there. But you also go to things like, um, well, workplace policies. We can get to that in a minute if you want to. But you can go to things like institutional policies or... Um, you know, those organisations that have an interest in children. Like, I just had an experience the other day in taking two of my grandchildren to um, preschool daycare and I was described as being a wonderful man, right? Um, you know, and I mean, that kind of thing, I suppose, I heard years ago when I was doing the same thing with my uh, children at the time. But th those policies and practice if I just go a little bit further, we don't make a pres presumption in a lot of those institutions that men and women share the responsibility for care, right? It's not part of the policy and practice. And I could give you, and you could go then to the public debate, and I started to do this over the weekend. I could give you three or four articles that I got out of popular newspapers over the weekend that make an assumption that only women have responsibility for children. Mm. Right? Still. Yeah, still. Yeah. It's still there, right? And if you take one of the articles that I read was, was about a, um, a new approach to engaging mothers in a um, low economic and I think indigenous area in West Australia, it was in the Fin Review. Uh, the whole intervention there was around mothers. It didn't include... Mm. Fathers, so that you know you've got those kinds of policy expectations that are that are there, and the public debate. The other area that I think is really interesting is comes back to research, and as Bridget said, we didn't ask some of these questions in research years ago. I got into research in fathers in 1975, and and I suppose one of the classic studies then was a study done by Tiffany Field, which basically showed that, and Ross Park was the other one, and basically showed that men and women can be competent caregivers. But if you, if you go and do a hard analysis of research, and I've done that in some research studies in Australia, there are still research studies in Australia that do not take a, an equal uh, framework for doing research on parents, and on, on mothers mm -hmm. and fathers. It's still the case that there's a bias and an assumption that mothers are more important to children, so it's not there. So, I mean, in all of those ways, it still pervades. And I sit here and I say, I mean, if you take the examples that Annabelle gave there before, I mean, some of that, I, you know, has happened 30, 40 years ago, and it's still happening. And I think that although there has been an enormous shift, I think that mindset, mindset and expectation that we have about men and women still needs... Okay, let's, let's get to the tough question, though. Let's say the policies change and the, the public uh, framework changes. Do men want this? Oh, jeez. <laughs> well... <laughs> you see... Which men? No, well, I, I suppose... Pardon me. I suppose... The thing about it is that when you engage with men, I mean, I do a lot of work with men, I, and I, I, I do work in the workplace with men, so I engage with men in the workplace, and I suppose I moved a lot of my work uh, years ago out of the community in, into the workplace because, you know, I, I suppose I had this idea it's better to work with men where they are, and that's where they are in the workplace, and I suppose... Um, what you do is when you start to scratch the surface there and engage men in a different way, you'd be surprised 
what happens. I'm going to give you an, I'll give you an example of this. Uh, I, I did a lot of work with a disability service. So these were language-delayed um, children. And the, uh, the, the program was for mothers of the child with a disability. So they'd come into this early child centre and engage with the children there. The, the mothers would be there while they, they were there and then ran a mother's group. So it was a support system as well as uh, an early childhood centre for language-delayed children. And one of the people who were supporting that came to me one day and said, what do you think about dads? What do you think we should do? Is there any, look, dads really aren't interested. You know, I, I, but someone suggested we might try and engage them. And so I helped work with them to change their presumption, change it from the start to presume that mothers and fathers have equal responsibility for children. And that changed their whole approach to it and policies and practices. So I ran a father's support group for, I don't know, maybe a year, year and a half. The funding cut out and, and we didn't do it anymore. But I still remember quite, remember quite vividly one of the men who was there in his suit, and in those days our mobile phones were like bricks, right? <laughs> and he had one of those and he's standing there and, and we started out with the group. So the discussion was, well, tell me about your child and tell me about you and tell me why you're here today and how you got here and all that kind of stuff. And I just, as an aside, about 50% of the men who were there told their workplace that they were sick because this was during work hours. Mm. So it wasn't at that time that they could actually do that. But I still remember quite vividly this guy who stood up, when it got to him, he stood up in the middle of the room in this really emphatic way and he said, I am sick of being seen as the village idiot with regard to my child with a disability. Mm. So given that opportunity, you know, he, he changed and came into that. I, I don't for a moment want to argue that, you know, all men are warmed up like Annabelle made this comment before. They're not kind of reaching out, they're not out in the street and saying, I want to do this. But I think that if we change some of our approaches, change some of our policies, change some of our expectations, and particularly the workplace, if we don't change the workplace, and I know you, uh, well, the um, Joan Williams example was given by Catherine in the last session there. Uh, I, I think that a lot of mm. this is going to And I think the one thing you can say is that there are a lot of older men who look at their sons as good fathers and get quite upset about the fact that they missed out. And they realise that they missed that. They realise they missed out on something really significant. It's the opportunity. And, I mean, it's ridiculous to reach a conclusion about whether men want this or whether men don't. Because the truth is that everyone's different and some people want to do this more than they want to do that or they, you know, it's just like women, right? I mean, the problem is if you have an, um, uh, a powerful assumption that they won't want to do it, then they don't get asked and then the ones that do miss out. And, I mean, that's a tragedy, right? Like, it's a tragedy for them that they miss out on that stuff. It's a tragedy for their children and it's a tragedy, you know, for their wives who end up doing, you know... Mm -hmm. um, double loads of, of um, some of that kind of work. And I don't know, it just seems like an incredibly gaping missed opportunity if you've got a whole cohort of people who regularly do not get asked about stuff. Like, I mean, I used to go berserk when I read, you know, like how often does this happen when you pick up an interview with a, let's say, a, a female CEO, right, who, um, who says, uh, who's the, you know, running this company or whatever, and also has kids. And it's like, how do you do it? What, oh, how do you manage? You're a superwoman, you know. And I used to get angry at that and think, stop asking this woman this question. Ask her about her work, blah, blah, blah. Now I've completely done a um, 180. I think the bad thing is not to not ask her. It's, um, mm. the bad thing is not to ask her. It's to not ask the guys, right? And I, um, 
I can't remember the name of this company or the, or the fellow, which makes me a poor raconteur, but um, uh, last year I read this great blog post by a guy in the States who had set up oh, yeah. his own IT company. It was like huge, mm. brilliant kind of um, success and he was very busy. And he, he wrote this, he, he quit the leadership of this country, a company and gave himself another job, which is what you can do when it's your company. And he said, he wrote this plaintive little blog post, which was that... In the time that I've been running this company, um, I've been asked a million questions in interviews, and every time I read a, an article about a female CEO, the first thing they ask is, you know, how do you manage it with your children? And no one has ever asked me that question, and is it a struggle? And I've been asked what my favourite colour is and what my favourite car is, and nobody's ever asked me, and since you didn't, I'm just going to tell you, it's really hard, and that's why I'm quitting, and my poor wife has been carrying this load, and, you know, it's unfair, and I want to see my children, and... Boo-hoo, there you go. And I thought, what a great guy. And I thought, that is the thing, you know, ask, ask. Don't rule out automatically that a man might be interested in taking parental leave or being the primary carer or just changing the way he works to fit in with the other stuff that's going on in his life, just like women do all the time and expect to be able to do. Like, you know how there's all that research about women don't ask for stuff? I mean, it's terrifying. It's kind of um, true that women and men are, um, have differing um, general um, propensities to demand stuff in the workplace. One thing that women are good at asking for is flexible work or um, maternity leave or to be able to change the way they work to manage their other responsibilities. But um, there is a real lag of um, men being prepared to ask for that stuff. <laughs> partly because they have a, uh, a rational or irrational fear that it will affect the way that they're regarded at work and the evidence suggests that um, in some workplaces that is a reasonable fear. Mm, all right. Is some of the blame, though, women, for treating their husbands as if they're idiots about this stuff, that they're not competent about the, the, uh, the, the raising of the child or the cleaning of the house or the cooking of the dinner? Yes. Well, I think some of it, certainly. You know, I, I think that we all have to look at what role we're playing. But, I, you know, it goes back to, like, are we choosing these roles or do we think that, you know, are we playing these roles because it's all we know. And so a lot of what I tried to do in my book is change the narrative, change the stories that we're telling ourselves. Because when you look at some surveys, like Pew Research Center, Gallup, Harris, there are lots of particularly young men who say to pollsters they do want to be involved. They don't want to be the distant father. They do want to have kind of a new role. And so the chapter in my book is, you know, dads want to have it all too. You know, there is this kind of different ethic for, you know, kind of for millennial, um, particularly some millennial men. Um, you know, when you're talking about policy and kind of culture, uh, I, I went to Denmark, um, and I, the reason I went to Denmark was completely, there was this, there's a wonderful researcher here in Australia named Lynn Craig, and she looked at women's leisure. And she saw that women in Denmark, mothers, had almost as much leisure time as fathers. And when she showed this, I was like, woo, I gotta, what are they doing there? You know, I gotta go and find that out. And what was shocking to me is once I went to Denmark, I spent most of my time with men. And I realized that you cannot have leisure for women until you have workplaces. Everybody there works a, a, a very kind of intense, short, flexible work hours. They have gender equality, just like Graham was saying, so embedded in their culture. They have a minister of gender equality in the cabinet. 
He's on the same level as the Secretary of State and the Minister of Defense. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you, know, you know, and they also value leisure there. And I spent time with this one family and it's Friday afternoon and uh, they trade off short and long work days. So it was the, the mom's short work day and so she did the kid pickup and uh, they, she came home and the husband comes flying in the door. It's a little after five and he's ridden his bike like five kilometers in the rain or whatever. And he's, he comes in and he's breathless. He's like, oh, I got home just in time. And I look, I was like, well, what, what are you hurrying for? And then the wife comes like bouncing out of the bathroom in her workout gear. It's like, oh, he came home in time for me to get to my favorite workout class. You know, it's like, wah, wah. <laughs> and he worked for like the Speaker of Parliament, you know? So in the United States, that would never happen, right? Because you'd be at work till midnight because that's what you, you, know, you would think. And then he started making dinner. He like had made pizza dough that morning. And I was asking... Bridget this, like, now has married this man. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was, it, was, it was shocking to me. I, was so, I, so I tried to like, you know, keep my mouth shut. It's like I was, I was taking notes. You know, but one of the things that they do, because they've made gender equality such a, an important quality, and early on, all boys and girls take home ec, and both boys, boys and girls learn how to cook. And so he was making the pizza recipe he learned as a 14-year-old. So they start early, and they've, and they've kind of embedded it in their culture. And I did see that. I, I saw that change. I went to, they're, they're trying to have fathers, they don't want to call them play groups because it sounds too much like a mother's play group. But again, because it is, uh, they wanted men to be able to come together to learn how and support each other to parent in their own ways. So they call it a father playground. And it was, it was hysterical. You know, there are guys and totally parenting in a guy way, like a kid, they're kind of laying down on these mats and their kids are running around and some kid like falls over and bonks his head. You know, and I could just only, I nearly ran over like, oh, are you all right? You know, because that's sort of how, I guess, how I would mother or whatever. And the guys are sort of like, you know, they go back to talking and the kid sort of like <laughs> blinks, like, oh, that really hurt, but nobody's paying attention, you know, and he didn't start crying. He just went off and played something else. And so it really was a, a lesson to me that there are, you know, the different styles. But I mean, well, that, that's really... a lot of research on that, though, isn't it, Graham? Okay, about the essentialism, you called it earlier, where yeah. the men offered something different. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've, uh, what I was trying to say is that we've gone from competence now to essentialism, and so the argument now is, well, men need to be involved because they can give this kind of masculine model to it. But to my mind, that's a stereotype, and it goes back to the assumptions that we often make about people, women in the workplace, that they're going to offer something different because in the relationships they're caring and so on. And that's a stereotype, again, that goes down a different kind of pathway. Uh, my view about... The, well, the research shows, I'm very clear about this, that men have their influence over children in exactly the same way as women do, and that is through caring relationships and being there. And the other thing about it too is that I, I felt that for a long time we were trying to justify fathers, you know, justify why they should be there, you know, and show me the research. I mean, I gave talks to preschools where people said, are you sure about that? <laughs> you know, are you absolutely sure that men can do this? Well, anyone would know who's got children, fathers matter to their children. You know, I mean, it's simple. They do. Part, um, of, the, part of the problem, though, don't you reckon, Graham, is that it's acceptable to say publicly, oh, men are terrible at, you know, um, the whites wash or, you know, I'd never let my husband get the kids dressed because they'd go to school in flippers or, you know, oh, ha, ha, ha. You know, like, you can't say that stuff about women in the workplace. 
like disparage an entire gender's competence, but it's totally fine mm. to say that at the school gate. You hear that all the time. I mean, we, have ad, we have ads on television where men put the milk in the washing machine yes. because they're so dumb. Hilarious. I mean, or, you know, men versus nappies is one of the great advertising <laughs> memes of the 20th century, right? I mean, there was um, this hilarious one in the States uh, where they had this big Super Bowl ad and it was Huggies, I think. Right. And they did this ad which cost them a huge amount of money to make. They basically got these dads and their babies to live in a house for the weekend. They had cameras in every room and they filmed them and filmed them and filmed them and then they ran this big ad campaign. It was like, Huggies, we subjected them to the toughest test you can imagine. Dads. And there was all this, they used to this footage of kids like dragging around with dirty nappies while their dads were like drinking beer and watching the football. And what happened after that ad went to air was that there was a groundswell of protest from fathers, from mothers, just saying this is just bullshit. It's so patronising, it's offensive, it's wrong. And they took it off the air and they recut it into this really lame kind of to test out how Huggies nappies, we subjected them to the toughest test imaginable. Milk at bedtime. And they just had all these like images of the dads feeding their, their babies with bottles. And you know, it kind of was like they completely re-smudged the whole ad to be something less offensive and actually positive about dads. But we've got one in Australia where, you know, the dad is driving along in his, his station wagon and he's like bopping along to Grandmaster Flash or something. And he's, you know, kind of like, white man overbite going like this. And then he pulls back into the driveway and there's his wife, who is like this grey-faced woman who looks completely bereft and she's sort of using her last drops of human optimism to water a shrub. And she looks up and she says, and she says, did you remember the nappies? And he goes, nappies. The whole point being is he was sent out to get nappies and he was so cool, he was so thrilled with the car mm-hmm. that he forgot to mm-hmm. get the nappies, you know. Well, us real men would have been focused on their child because they love the child, actually. Well, yeah. you know, I mean, actually. it's just... It's, it's amazing what we laugh at, you know. What we are laugh at is a really good judge of where we think people are at. So, like, it's funny for a man to be bad at that stuff because deep down we expect that that's what will happen, mm-hmm. right? You know, I know even in my show, Kitchen Cabinet, where I go and cook with politicians in their houses, you know, Julia Gillard would never come on our show because I think she, she doesn't cook. She wasn't really keen on being bad at cooking on the screen. You saw what happened when she stood next to an empty fruit bowl, right? It was like a <laughs> giant ordeal for the nation for some time. You know, wow, what's wrong with this woman that she has no fruit? Anyway, <laughs> you missed it, but you would have loved it. Um, but, you know, I go and shoot uh, an episode at Joe Hockey's house and we walk into his kitchen and I say, right, where's the knife drawer? And he goes... <laughs> Didn't know. So, but that was sort of funny and adorable because we don't expect men to be great at that stuff. And I think it's, I mean, it's, I think it's just... If you don't expect people to be good at it and you broadly um, think it's not a problem mm. if they're bad at it, then how do you expect that things will change? You'd think he'd know where the knife drawer was just by being, <laughs> just by being in the cabinet. Yeah. Um, we, we've got a little bit of time. We've got about uh, 15 minutes left, 10, 10 or 15 minutes left for some questions. So there's two microphones, one and two. If, uh, if people have a, a quick question for, for anybody or everybody, that would be, here we go. We've got one here. Um, and we'll just take... Um, do you want to be, be our first one? That would be great. Me? Yes. Yeah, perfect. Fantastic. 
Um, I, my question is, you know, you talked about do men want this change and should the question not be it's irrelevant if they want it because we need this to happen because mm. the status quo for men and for women isn't working. Well, how, how do we move to that bit where we say, you know what, the answer is this needs to happen, let's get on with it? Graham, why don't you? Well, I agree with you. Um, I mean, it, we shouldn't be asking do men want it. it. It's something that's really needed and I think men as individuals and as a group need to take more responsibility for ensuring that that does happen. Uh, as I said before, I think one of the big opportunities you've got is to change the workplace. And I think unless the workplace is changed, unless we really take a hammer at the ideal worker, ideal work, ideal career, all that kind of stuff, a lot of this stuff is, is going to be difficult. Until we make this stuff visible in the workplace, until we make the impact of this uh, visible, uh, I don't think it's going to happen either. I mean, I was at a, a session recently where one of the very senior males in our society who is really gung-ho about gender equality and he was asked a question about you know, fatherhood which would have gone down the pathway perhaps into his personal life and what all this means there and the question was totally avoided and I think that that kind of stuff we need to be more open about and, you know, start to do and I think men need to do that. Now, just, I just want to make one other point about that is I have never come across a man who's taken parental leave in a workplace and gone out of the period for, for out of the workplace for a period of time, and said that's really stuffed my career, mm -hmm. right? I've never met a man like that. Yeah. Heather, um, I'm a 21-year-old male student, single. Like I'm as far from kids as possible right now. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we've spoken a lot about pretty much gender roles for expecting or already families. And I thought, like, I'm already feeling the resounding impacts of gender roles that far away from me now. So I thought, could we discuss, I guess, the greater effects of gender expectations, which we haven't done even yet. Even before childhood, even yeah, before parenthood, you mean? because it's there. Like, I'm working in... I'm not working, I'm starting a field which, me being part-time from home, is very accessible. And I'm feeling like sometimes even shame for that. Hmm, okay. Feeling ashamed of that, sorry? Yeah, well, like, not ashamed. Like, that's something I'd love to do. But that has ramifications that I feel in my discussions with people around me. You mean men, have to, men are supposed to be ambitious early and all that sort yeah. of stuff? Yeah, right. okay. stuff like that. Like, yeah. male leadership, those sorts of traditional... Gender roles. Yeah. Okay, so gender stereotyping and how, from really early on, even before parenting. Right, right. I think that you're absolutely right. I, I, one of the things that I said earlier is that we have to start, you know, the workplace absolutely needs to change, but we also need to start earlier. Um, you know, think about it. Even with the chores that we give our kids to do, you know, why do we always assume that the, that the girls should do the dishes and the inside chores and the boys should always do the outside chores? Um, you know, one of the things that we could do, we could certainly learn lessons from gay couples. When the studies, when, when you've looked at how they divide um, their roles or how they divide the labor, it's all about who's good at what and who likes doing what. And well, let's face it, really nobody likes doing the drudge work. So how do you make it fair? 
Um, but, but you're right, you know, boys, look at what they did in Denmark. Boys and girls take home act. Boys and girls learn how to cook, and that's simply the expectation. Boys and girls should babysit and learn how to be caregivers. Boys and girls can learn how to mow the lawn. Uh, you know, because I think that you're right. It all starts very early. You, you know, you just look at the, the career choices that different people make. Some of that is, you know, they're, they're steered into it. Why do women choose to go into certain caregiving roles, like nursing or secretaries or, you know, teaching? And then why are those so paid so poorly? Because they're feminine roles. Why, do, why are men sort of pushed into science and technology and engineering, which tend to be higher paying roles? So I think we do need to look really broadly at how we see the world through these kind of very gendered lenses very early on. And we do need to change that very early on. Hmm. Another one here, please. Th thanks, the panel's been fantastic. Um, my question sort of dovetails from the previous one. In thinking outside of the roles in the workplace and thinking about sort of um, socialisation of kids from, you know, one, um, a friend pointed out who's actually the um, primary caregiver, he's male, um, that... The, and he made me aware of something which he observes generally, which is a little girl comes up and it's like, oh, first comment about her appearance, aren't you gorgeous? Mm. Boy, mm. oh, what have you been doing? Oh, blah, blah, blah. Mm. So that embedded expectation, what girls and boys should do, I just, following on what you just said, can you actually explore what can be done? Because that's when it counts. That's what creates the deep-seated expectations about what's valuable for boys and what's valuable for girls. Like, that's, to me, more critical yeah. than the workplace because that sets the foundation for everyone's a thoughts. Anna Annabelle? I think schools, particularly primary schools, are so important. They really, really are. And not just because that's where children learn, but it's also where parents learn in a really big way. Like, one of the things about having children is that... Um, and I responded really strongly to what Bridget was saying earlier about competency and who gets to learn to be competent. I mean, like, nobody knows what they are doing when they have a child. Like, unless they grew up in a giant family and just, you know, um, had lots of little brothers and sisters or they've got lots of cousins or whatever. Like, you know, most people who get together and have a baby have no freaking idea what to do with that baby. You know, like, you know, Jeremy and I had our first baby in London and we kind of, you know, they let you out of the hospital about six hours after birth. So we were like in this freezing cold car park with this bundle going like, does anyone know how to put this car seat in the car? And like 40 minutes it took and I could, at some point, I'm sure I saw the baby signaling for help, you know. <laughs> to pass this by. I seem to have been delivered into the hands of idiots. I was expecting parents, you know. And, um, and schools are like that too, you know, like when you take your kid along to school for the first time, you respond to all the signals that you see there about, you know, who's um, more likely to be asked to do reading or, you know, help out on this stall. When, when is the Mother's Day? Is the Mother's Day a morning tea in the middle of the morning? Is the Father's Day thing a breakfast? Because that often happens, because dads will have to go to work, whereas mothers will be just, you know, buffing their nails at 10 past 10. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, all of these underlying things. And, and schools are where, obviously, children pick up their ideas about what activities they're more likely to be interested in too. And I think, you know, some of the greatest teachers that I see, and I'm fortunate, my kids go to a great New South Wales public school, which is yeah. full of... <laughs> which is um, great at teaching children that they are 
okay to choose this activity or that activity. They all do cooking. They all do gardening. They all do that sort of stuff. And it's just, it's super valuable, not just for kids, but for parents too. All right. Sorry, Graham, yeah. Unless we take gender equality seriously at a broader social level, I think that the schools have limited opportunity to change, really, because I, I don't disagree with you that that's where we should be doing this, but at the moment, uh, there's no kind of pervasive energy around doing that. And, you know, unless there's something else that overarches this and we take it seriously, I, I, I can't see... I mean, in, in my family, we've been embedded in the education system for 30, 40 years. And a lot of these comments we're making now, but they were there a long time ago and they're still there. And, but the opportunity for somebody to change it is fairly small. Even if you take the health system, the hospital system, just had our eighth grandchild born, you, you go to the hospital and the card on the baby has still got the mother on it. You know, so those kinds of things haven't changed very much at all until we really grasp something and... and, and the mother's the only one they can be sure was involved. <laughs> If I, if, if I could add something really quickly, Richard, if I could add something really so, quickly. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I was just going to say really quickly, get, getting to that point of, like, larger change. Um, in Sweden, uh, one of the things that they're trying to do, they've eliminated, like, I don't know, pronouns, his and her, and, like, hin and han, and came up with hun or something like that, you know, to make it more gender neutral. And they're making a real effort in preschools to have gender neutral toys um, and not sort of push... Uh, you know, boys into trucks and girls into dishes. Um, so that's somewhat controversial, the changing the language. But there are places that are trying to make efforts very early on. Okay, we've got time for two questions. So one here. Just a quick one. I'm fascinated that you all make reference to Scandinavia. Why do you think there's such a marked difference? Do you know historically what made these differences between Scandinavia and, say, Australia and the United States? Great. I do not know the answer to that question. Uh, I, I, well, this, so I should be able to answer this question. Um, I, th I think it had more to do with the fact that it was uh, necessary for their economy for women to uh, be actively participant in the paid workforce and then the policies flowed from that if they were going to ensure that their economy uh, was producing in the way that it should be and having a high female employment rate. And then the policies, I think, came along from that and they've stayed there. Can I just mention what happened in Norway? Um, they actually, in the 70s, retooled their already generous paid parental leave scheme because Norway did, you know, put all the proceeds from their minerals boom into a sovereign wealth fund and lots of other smarty pants, stuff like that. But they also had paid parental leave. But they noticed in the 70s that men just weren't taking it. So they actually retooled it and they made a big chunk of the paid parental leave available to a certain family, only available if the dad took it. So they actually retooled that whole identity about um, being a dad and wanting to provide for, me, for your family and made it work for, in favour of them spending time with their children instead of against that, right? So it's a really simple little lever to kind of give a niggle to, but it really changed quickly the pattern of how many men took it. And it's sort of like, we understand you want to provide for your family. Here's a chunk of money that you won't get unless you spend some time, you know, mm -hmm. with your little baby. And it's... Interesting. One last, one last question. Hi. Um, I'm actually uh, uh, the only daughter in a family and I have four brothers. Um, so I like to consider myself to be a bit of a masculinist in terms of um, the fairness for them. One of the things that they say to me is that they say, 
actually we have girlfriends and they get into their 30s and they've been talking about feminism all through their 20s and then suddenly they have a baby and they go, oh, actually, this is pretty cool. I really like maternity leave. Actually, I want to take two years off. Actually, I want to take five years off. Um, and they, I just, I'm interested in what we can do as females to um, protect their ability to fight for what they need, if that makes sense. First of all, I don't think that I don't think that being a stay-at-home mother is anti-feminist. Like I just I just don't make that connect. I mean, part of the I think that like the long-term objective of feminism is to open the gate and say, right, off you go, do whatever you like. You know, I don't like this whole idea that you are anti-feminist if you're not kind of pursuing a certain lifestyle or whatever. Like it's choice is the whole thing here. I think and that. With regard to men too, you know, I think the the liberation from expectations and unfair um, unfair expectations of that about what your choice is likely to be should be the end game for all of us. You know, and one of the things I'd like to add, I absolutely agree with that. That you know, to kind of end the end the kind of the mommy wars issue, if you will. But I think the other thing we have to recognize is how constrained our choices are for both men and women, given the sort of structures that we've got, our laws and our policies, our expectations. Um, and and I think it goes back to workplace culture again. If you have a workplace that that accepts you as a whole self that you work, that you have family, that you need time to refresh, whether you're a man or a woman or a parent or not. If our workplaces change, then I think some of those questions of choice uh, certainly open up as well. And you don't feel quite so constrained. A lot of times women feel it's either or. I don't wanna work because what I have to sacrifice at home is too much. What if our workplaces changed and we understood that to do effective work requires short, intense work hours and respects the fact that you have family and time for connection, whether it's your own family or you know siblings or community, and that you all need time to refresh your soul. It makes you better in all three spheres of your life. What a wonderful, optimistic place to end. Please thank Annabelle Crabb, Graham Russell, Bridget Kitty. Can men change? Yes, we can! <laughs>